Good morning, and welcome to ULEAD, the news and current affairs from Dalhousie and the University of King's College nestled on unceded, unsurrendered Mi'kmaq territory. I'm your host, Carly Schogner. Last Tuesday, Dalhousie announced this year's election results for the 2018's Dalhousie student election. Aaron Prosper was announced as the first Mi'kmaq president. Aaron is from Eskasoni First Nation in Cape Breton, a neuroscience student, and is a drummer with the Eastern Eagle Drummers. I spoke with him in studio. Were you betting on, on uh, was it going to be a top top lead, or were you shocked about the, the announcement? Um, <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't put myself ahead of them because, you know, they, and I spoke to a few of them since the elections, and, you know, they, they all had great ideas. Um, you've been very active overall. What do you believe is missing at Dal? I think with our student body and given not not even just this past year but over the years I know like I came into school and we had you know early on the dentistry scandal uh, in my third year we had some unfortunate events uh, regarding the medical school just just a lot of events on campus that has really polarized our student body have polarized parts of our our faculties or our departments and so I think you know my goal going in is trying to bring up you know that unification of of a university when I go away if I go to a conference I say I go to Dal often the comments back are about the scandals or oh that must be tough and and yes they're tough and we're as a student body we're working through them but there's also good things about Dal and I want people to see the good things and I want people to see the good things about our students and and about our, our researchers and our faculty. Do you think that is also part of the community's uh, active responsibility in holding people accountable? So maybe because we, we hear so much is actually because there's a lot more people who are willing to expose something mm. that might be also quite similar on other campuses but are just not mm-hmm. um, vocalized. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would I would definitely agree with that. We have a lot of really good activists on our campus that, that do a lot of really good work, um, a lot of positive work that have, has, have brought positive change and have held people accountable um, to actions. And I think that's a positive thing moving forward. Given the things we've that have happened on our campus, I think we still need that. So there definitely there is a lot of work moving forward and we still need a lot of that. This is not going to be black and white. We're moving in the right direction. I mean, I was looking Dow's, I guess, recent history in mm-hmm. incorporating more Indigenous Mi'kmaq mm. uh, culture. Over the past years, it says that it's created a minor in Indigenous studies. Mm-hmm. It's raised the flag, which you are part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it brought in the elders and residents. Uh, it brought in a Indigenous student, a full-time student advisor. I don't know if you the Charlie Von Jack Legacy Room. Mm-hmm the National Center for TRC Hub, as well as the Shulik Law Indigenous Black and Mi'kmaq Initiative. Do you see a difference uh, from this, uh, or does it? do you see anything need of improving? Um, I see a difference. It's definitely made a positive impact. But at the end of the day, like there's still always work to do. When we're looking at truth and reconciliation, we're looking at reconciliation, not conciliation. And so getting back to that, you know, we shouldn't be complacent with the progress, being someone that's been working with the administration on these issues, I can say there are things that that need work, but definitely, you know, working on building 
stronger relationships, say, with um, our local chiefs or our local communities. You know, coming from Cape Breton, Cape Breton University um, has a very strong uh, relationship with Mi'kmaq chiefs, and they have well, the Unamagi Institute within Cape Breton University, and much of that is run by what's called Mi'kmaq Inabatnoe. And Mi'kmaq Inabatnoe, um, by extension, is is funded and and run by the chiefs. And so, you know, things like that that we could probably look at on our campus, expanding our reach, expanding our relationships, not just with the indigenous community within our university but with, within the Indigenous communities outside, locally. I was uh, at a TRC cafe with uh, Danny Paul from mm -hmm. Member 2, and there was much of discussion around, again, the recognition of traditional knowledge. I think mm -hmm. it's interesting in the academic setting, mm -hmm. and we have all these fields, oceanography, geography. Mm -hmm. It's not recognizing that, again, Indigenous traditional knowledge and mm -hmm. Indigenous knowledge has known so much of this core information, but mm -hmm. it isn't recognized. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see that Dalhousie can improve that recognition? Yeah. So the way I look at it, and I heard this on CBC one time, um, I forget the name of the Indigenous scholar, but they were talking in terms of indigenizing the academy. And I myself personally don't agree with some of the interpretations of that because um, one of them is just to simply increase the number of Indigenous people within the institution, but not really considering the Indigenous knowledge part of that or what they may bring in with their Indigenous knowledge. And so, yes, we can bring in an increased number of Indigenous people, but because they are Indigenous does not necessarily equate to their uh, academia being based within Indigenous knowledge, because they may be coming into this university and being put through um, these Western systems. And then the other thing I think needs to be adopted when they're thinking about traditional knowledge is, this was broken down for me by one of my teachers. Her name is Carol Hopkins. And Carol Hopkins is the director of the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. And the way she dichotomizes indigenous knowledge is you have traditional knowledge and you have sacred knowledge. And so traditional knowledge is the knowledge kind of gained through the years, through our, our, our methodologies, through our, through our forms of research to come to conclusions about particular things, uh, whereas sacred knowledge is kind of based out of our sacred teachings that we believe, well, from my teachings, um, don't necessarily have a place within academia because we haven't laid that foundation. Uh, whereas traditional knowledge, traditional knowledge can vary uh, between different individuals uh, within the nation, where sacred knowledge is kind of uh, more uniform. It's the things you, you really can't question because they're fundamental to who we are and what we believe in. Dal, moving forward, needs to learn more about that, not just Dal, like every university, learn more about that and learn how to incorporate indigenous knowledge where individuals can learn through this traditional knowledge without jeopardizing sacred knowledge. Like for example, um, if there's a discussion around uh, fish migrating in the certain mm. seasons or the impact on climate change mm -hmm. in like for example, like in Nunavut mm -hmm. and you know, it's like we wait on the white scientist to tell us what it is, but mm -hmm. really, I mean, indigenous folk have been saying, well, this is what it's been like mm -hmm. 
for a long time. So, yeah, how do you push that away so that it's not just relying on, like, the white scientist and mm. actually listening to people who are from those communities? Um, have them at the table. Have them there. Create a, a space for that that voice. One example, there's a story. Um, when they built the Kanzo Causeway, there's a big celebration at the Kanzo Causeway when they finished it, actually to the point they had a whole parade that went across the Kanzo Causeway. Uh, and there was a Mi'kmaq elder at the top of the hill, uh, and one of this elder was, was crying. And, and they looked at him and they said, what, what's wrong? Like, this is, a, this is a big thing. We're celebrating. We should celebrate. And he said, no, um, it's not a time to celebrate. This, this causeway is the main migration route for eels. It's also the main migration route for many of our dolphins, uh, beluga, uh, pilot whales, uh, things like that. And he said, because of this causeway, it's going to disrupt that whole system. And sure enough, we've had a very, since that point, a rapid decline in our eel population to the point that government has now had to step in to boost the population. And then, but the other thing too is with that knowledge, this individual knew the migration route of these eels and where they were going. And when you look at the science today on eels, nobody knows where eels go. It's very limited knowledge on the migration routes of eels and where they go into the ocean to spawn and then to come back. And so, you know, the fact that this individual had this knowledge through his traditional teachings on where eels went when that was not common knowledge uh, within the Western science. And what he said was, was proven right years down the road. Do you have a, a call to action that is most important to you? Mm, yeah, I do, actually. I don't have it, like, completely memorized, but it's <laughs> I'll bring it up on my phone. Mm. If anyone has ever received an email from me, uh, I put calls to action 13 and 16, but I also include a, a quote from Bernie Francis. And so... The, it pertains to Mi'kmaq or indigenous languages. Being a fluent speaker of Mi'kmaq, something that's very important to me, um, to see the language stay alive, to see people have the opportunity to learn their language. Because I know I've, being from Eskizoni and being that that's the largest Mi'kmaq reservation, I'm quite fortunate in a sense because the language is still there. We still have elders, we still have, you know people within our community that that speak fluently uh my father for one um you know all my aunts and uncles speak Mi'kmaq fluently my sister speaks it fluently um you know and that's just within my own family and then and their children but then you look like throughout the whole community we have a community of almost four thousand and a, a good significant number of them speak the language but that's not the case in other reserves sometimes there's reserves uh, that have no speakers um, of the Mi'kmaq language and so really trying to extend that and so that's what these calls to action in these, the Bernie Francis quote it says remember brothers and sisters the greater part of our spirituality is embedded in our language that is why it was attacked with such vigor and so that's getting to you know um, we as Mi'kmaq believe, you know, our language um, has more than three tenses, um, so past, present, future, uh, but we also believe that our language has a spiritual tense. And so in the sense that you can change words to instill a spiritual connotation into the word. And so one example would mean like Dabugal, 
would mean two or two of something. Dabusijig uh, would mean two of something that is animated, so it, it has a spirit. Um, so mm. our, our language kind of does that a lot. And so then the calls to action 13, we call upon federal government to acknowledge that Aboriginal rights include Aboriginal language rights. And then 16, we call upon post-secondary institutions to create university and college degree and diploma programs in Aboriginal languages. So it was another thing that uh, Danny Paul had mentioned, and uh, he was addressing how he wanted President Florizone to recognize is unceded, unsurrendered, Mm -hmm. rather than traditional Mi'kmaq. Can you speak to me about that? Do you know? Yeah. So that's based out of the well the 1752 treaties but basically all the treaties together so you have 1725 26 you have 1752 you also have 1761 62 but the significant one is 1752 in my opinion and within that there are particular clauses that that say we will live in peace in friendship and in return the british can can live here in peace, and the Mi'kmaq can live here as they did throughout their lifetime, uh, unpeated, and they shall go anywhere within the land that they have not surrendered as freely as they want and as willingly as they want. Um, and so why it's significant to Mi'kmaq is because so 1752, you have that treaty, but you actually have treaty denial periods uh, and so, like, the very first treaty denial period was actually started through the creation of, of Halifax uh, and Edward Cornwallis uh, creating the Halifax, creating this the city. And so what historians call that is the first treaty denial phase. Uh, and it goes through phases, and then the second phase is throughout bits of the 1800s and early 1900s. And then you have phase three, which is kind of late 1900s and early 2000s. And and we might still be in phase three. I'm not quite sure, uh, but or maybe in a more modern phase uh, that's different. But it's significant because it's, you know, it's it's trying to get that recognition that we never had. You know, we signed these treaties and then they were denied almost two, three years later they were not being adequately recognized. And so it's really, it's it's getting to having them recognized, having them taught. And so that unceded, unsurrendered is, is based in that 1752 treaty uh, where it talks about there's no land being ceded to the British within that treaty or with any of the treaties. And so unceded meaning that the land is not given to the British within any of the peace and friendship treaties. And unsurrendered is kind of getting to, there was really no instance of of war within the history of Mi'kmaq and British relations where Mi'kmaq said, we give up, we surrender our land. And so the unsurrendered part is basically saying, at no point was there a war where we became conquered by the British Empire. in British colonialism at the time. And so here at Dal, like, they've started to recognize it, um, so I'm not sure the exact date when you talk to Danny Paul, but within within Senate, and so I would say by extension, the offices of the administration have begun saying um, unceded, 
uh, unsurrendered Mi'kmaq territory within the introduction of, of Senate meetings. Um, so it is a thing that's progressing. Oh, so getting back to your role as president, mm. there's you have a lot of responsibility in the sense yeah. that you're you know overarching people from all across the globe, mm -hmm. different backgrounds. Um, what are some, let's say, the top three priorities that you mm. have uh, for this sh for this position? Time? Um, well, first one is what I campaigned on: a hundred days of listening. My my big goal for that is you know early on within the year to reach out to students and to really get a sense of of what are their needs or what are the issues within the different faculties or within different student bodies maybe it's not faculties maybe it's not academic maybe it's uh, student life maybe it's residents um, doing that outreach because they're also i realize there's a reality that i as an individual not will not understand fully the circumstances of every other individual on this campus and so really getting to you know how can i at least understand these issues the best way i can and if i'm not the one to take the lead on something as as the president how can i help them uh, find an individual that can take the lead on their issues um, and give in uh, and give them the resources to, to address their issues. And so that, the next thing would be, you know, building a long-term plan for the union. Because my experience being a fourth-year student, every year we have executives that come in, and they all do a great job. There, there's a lot of really good ideas. But not often do those really good ideas get followed up on, unless it's mandated through some sort of policy within our union. And so... It's really, you know, figuring out those really good ideas, if it's in programming, if it's a policy, if it's an initiative that we can implement within our union on a long-term basis to help our students and to provide some consistency with our union from year to year uh, on the things we are advocating for students, um, but also how we are outreaching to students. And so getting back to like 100 days of listening, you know, meeting students where they're at, going beyond, say, a census or, or a survey. Because reality, from my experience, it's it's a lot of work to get um, surveys out there and to get people to fill surveys. And so going out and saying, attending meetings, attending uh, society AGMs, attending, you know, whatever whatever students invite me to, to be a part of my listening to them and to get a grasp of their issues. And then aside from that, really using all of what we learned this year to improve all of our our services, our initiatives, everything, our advocacy within the union to make it better. You know, there's things that are good, but there's also things that need improvement because at the end of the day, I realize, you know, it things within our union may seem like they're working within the confines of the union, you know, internally, but if they're not working for students, you know, which is the end goal, then I think we should, you know, re relook things uh, if they're not working for students. Wondering if you could uh, get a permanent flag at at the King's University mm. too. Push for that. I don't know if there's any persuasion there. I could, I could try <laughs> to help with that. Um, many, well, when we did do it, a lot of universities kind of followed our path so i know like 
There were students from St. Avex who knew that I worked very closely with the administration to get our flag up. And so they had reached out and, and asked some advice and input. And, and so I helped there at St. Avex um, in ways for them to get their flag permanently raised. Um, and it recently was, but I think it can be done. We'll, we'll definitely be there to help. Okay, well, thank you so much for yeah, coming by, and uh, I look forward to maybe hearing more from you here at the station. Thank you. You're listening to ULEAD on CKDU 88.1 FM. On Monday, King's Day Student Society hosted a tenants' rights workshop with Dow Legal Aid. Here are just some of the legal advice they provided. Log all communication between tenants and landlord. Put all roommates on your lease. Take photo records before and after damage inspection. If you rent a house with a friend, remember, you have the extra responsibility of upkeep. Landlords can ask to see proof of identification or references, but not what your religion is or your marital status. If you plan to sublet, ask your landlord if you can reassign the lease. Contact bylaw at 311 if your landlord is not addressing a certain matter. Libby Schofield was an organizer of the workshop. Here's what she had to say. King students provided their insight on the workshop. So uh, why did the Day Student Society uh, decide to create this event? Um, this is an event that happened two years ago, but didn't happen last year. Um, and part of our mandate as a society is to support Day students, so that is students who don't live on residence. Um, and obviously a big part of that is um, learning about what encompasses living in an apartment or off campus. Um, so that includes like people who are moving out of the parents' house for the first time, but also includes current students and residents who are maybe looking for an apartment for next year. Is there one that stands out to you that you learned? Um, I think it was interesting. One of the students mentioned that her landlord tried charging her for getting a cat, um, which I hadn't heard of before. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. On Wednesday, King's hosted its third last Automaton's Ovid to AI lecture series. Noel Starkey, a professor of robotics and popular BBC commentator, and Duncan McIntosh, professor of philosophy at Dalhousie University, debated at St. Mary's University on the role of autonomous weapons and killer machines in our society and what degree we should be concerned. Here is a portion of my interview with Professor Gordon McEwitt creator behind the lecture series. Since AI has been in the news quite a bit recently, we thought last year during one of our uh, program meetings that it would be a great idea to do something on artificial intelligence. We wanted to go from the ancient world all the way up to the modern rather than just issues that are happening right now. Would you categorize uh, social media algorithms as also automatons? Yeah, of course they are. Uh, Facebook is spending a, a ton of money on doing this. And if you're, you're not old enough to remember when the internet was getting going, there was a lot of debate about whether this would alienate ourselves from each other uh, because we'd always be on electronic device, which we always are. Uh, but it, that turns out actually we are closer together in some sense because I can talk to my friends in India right now uh, when I'm finished with you. Uh, but the caution was that we would alienate ourselves from each other. So it is that these new automatons in writing uh, social media uh, programs are actually looking for the signals of what we expect to happen. And then they feed back to us, right? And there's a lot of money being spent on this. 
uh, and what it turns out is that it creates silos that are that are impregnable uh, a possibility of not hearing what one wants to hear and this i think is a huge mistake uh, it's a huge uh, we uh, pride ourselves on our diversity but we rarely pride ourselves on our diversity of uh, encounters of other opinions right other views of the world and we there has to be some way to break that down so an upcoming meeting uh, focuses on intelligence, intelligent machines in war. What can we expect uh, in the upcoming lecture and, and our role in genocide prevention or humanitarian foreign affairs? You know, to not to skew the debate, but one imagines that the notion of a weapons that become entirely autonomous, grounded on algorithms that are supposed to suss out situations and then, um, then uh, act upon them, feeds back on that original uh, notion that we can just create tools that do our bidding. But it's not very clear when you have learning robots whether they are just doing our bidding or trying to optimize a certain sets of uh, responses and actions uh, which might have human beings well down the list as responsibilities, even though it starts out as being programmed for that, right? And so... You know, Elon Musk, who is a little bit um, over the top, uh, he is actually warning us that there might be something down the pipeline that we have to worry about because it's not clear whether the, uh, robots can make a distinction between them and machines when you've modeled humans on machines and machines on humans, so the, the boundary disappears. So what will happen in, in the light of that? We might end up with something that looks a little bit more scary than the atomic weapons of which the previous generation worried about and still should worry about. Actually, going to careers then, yeah. um, what would you recommend for persons who, you know, have a ethical mind, whatever field they're in, how, how do they bridge um, their fields into doing something that, in a field that is unrelated to what they're studying, um, to be able to be helpful towards these decision making? Oh, excellent. Uh, 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 put your shoulder up against a barrier and push hard lobby like crazy for the funding agencies to take this kind of thing seriously. We have a utopian project up our sleeves. I don't know if it'll ever happen. Every one of the big scientific technological projects, and there's a new one here at Ocean uh, Studies, and I understand the budget's going to have a huge amount of money uh, federally put towards this, to lobby like crazy to make sure that there are people in the humanities and social sciences working in, in the midst of those projects, right? Uh, not as not as overseers or propagandists or uh, anything like that. Just to work in proximity to those that are doing the designing and the and uh, the experience. You know, put a classicist in with a quantum physicist and see what happens. This allows for the possibility for communication that is not merely the um, echo effect that you talked about, but rather they say, "Well, hold on, why, why are you questioning what I'm doing here? What? How come this doesn't make sense to you?" And this allows for people to to begin to make simultaneous projects that are uh, sociable and ethical and aesthetic and all those kinds of things simultaneously with being about finding facts in the world and developing certain kinds of technologies. I think that the um, that universities are beginning to see that now, that that's important. Uh, and it's time for... Uh, young people not to merely say what the next paycheck is going to be, but to see if their paycheck can be associated with that, right? Um, get, I mean, here's an example. I send my uh, students in contemporary studies in the core class in philosophy of science and send them to work in laboratories for three months over at Dalhousie. These are philosophers working in a laboratory. 
laboratory guys go, what the hell are you doing in here? And then after a very short period of time, this synergy begins to develop between them. And the scientists tell me that their view of science changes radically with this encounter, and so do our people on the humanities side. It's really quite striking. In this spring weather, join Dow Bike Center for a Saturday bike ride from 11 to 2, or the play Drums and Organs on the Modern Frankenstein at Dow Art Center. <laughs> you can't get in there, right? There's no... Uh... Check out King's Big Day of Journalism to see documentary screenings on Thursday. Up next, Democracy Now! and CKDU Surprise. I'll leave you with A Tribe Called Red, featured Leonard Sumner, Shad, and Northern Voice with How I Feel. <laughs>